everyone and welcome to the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast about board games, board games and the people who love board games. My name is Tom Brewster and I'm one of the three entire human beings that's going to be pouring into your ears over the next 30 to 60 minutes and I'm joined by Ava Foxfort. Entire seems a bit optimistic right now but I'm doing my best. (laughs) <laughs> and Quentin Smith. Hello, Tom Brewster. Hello, Ava. Long time no podcast. It's been a while, hasn't it? It's really good to hear your dulcet tones. I nearly said sultry tones, and then I realised that's implying something that I'm not really going for. But uh, that's the after yeah. hours podcast. Yeah, Ava. Yeah. It's it's been so long. Are you not going to ask me how I'm doing? Oh uh, yeah, Quince, how are you dulcetly doing? <laughs> I'm not doing great, Ava. I'm not I, honestly. I'm I'm not doing brilliantly. You know why? Because uh, 18 minutes ago, I was flat on my back, top fully off, lying in the park next to my house. I was sunbathing, uh, and now I'm in a room with the curtains drawn, the windows shut. It's sweaty, and I, you're telling me I have to talk about board games for 45 minutes. My life's taken a turn, and I'm not happy about it. Quince, have you stopped loving board games? I love board games, but I think if you were to take just your average, you know, person off the street and say, like, you have to talk about board games for 45 minutes in a sealed room, they'd be like, that sounds awful. And like, I'm just relating <laughs> a bit more to them than I usually do. I can't believe that you're trying to elicit sympathy from our audience while you were sunbathing in the middle of the workday. <laughs> Look, we're all, I feel like this is relatable, right? We're all working from home now. We're all, you know, we're all able to to just pop the top right off in the middle of the day. Um, it's an, I, I, I think, have a little nap by the I, sounds of things. I do. I do. Quince, I how much do we pay you for sunbathing? <laughs> not, for sunbathing? Not enough. Not enough, let me tell you. So uh, on this podcast, we're going to be talking about three different games, unfortunately for Quince. We're going to be talking about Draftosaurus. Well, how many? Getting you. <laughs> We're going to be talking about Draftosaurus, a game about holding a whole clutch of dinosaurs in your sweaty palms. We're going to be talking about Court of Miracles, a game that's mostly about drowning people. And we're going to be talking about the Transcontinental, another game about a train. You know what? I've come around. This sounds like a good podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Up first, we are going to be talking about Draftosaurus, a cute box with a big old dinosaur on the front. Uh, for anybody age eight and over, Board Game Geek says you can enjoy this game if you're six years old. Imagine that. Um, and it is a very small, very simple, very cute game uh, about drafting dinosaurs. So you're going to receive a bunch of dinosaurs. You're going to pick one. You're going to pass the rest around the table. But is it fun? Mm. We're going to get to the bottom of that in the next, I would say, seven or eight minutes. Uh, but first, <laughs> I should say that Draftosaurus is designed by Antoine Bowser, Corentin Lebrat, Ludovic Mblanc, and Theo Riviere, uh, four French designers who are responsible. Like Antoine Bowser made Seven Wonders and Ghost Stories. Corentin Lebrat did uh, Trek 12, which Ava and I talked about a while back and quite enjoyed. Um, Ludovic Mblanc did Cyclades and Conan and Mr. Jack and Cash and Guns. Theo Riviere did uh, unlock uh, the loop, uh, Sea of Clouds. I'm going to say right now that Draftosaurus might be more underwhelming than any of those games I just listed, which is <laughs> kind of it's, unfortunate. It sounds like a, like you've got a little French game design supergroup there. Like I'm I was about to like say. Travelling Wilburys or whatever. Exactly. It's like if the Travelling Wilburys came together and then failed to do anything of note. Um, no, 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 sorry, sorry. This is, this is mean. I actually quite <laughs> like Draftosaurus. I'm sort of like, I'm trying to undermine Tom because I think Tom dislikes it more than I do. Look, look, uh, look, we won't get into the various power games going on between the Shut Up and Down members of Spark right now. 
Um, Draftosaurus is a game with lots of little wooden dinosaurs and everyone has a little park in front of them and everyone is going to take six dinosaurs out of the bag and put them in your palm and instantly your palm is going to start producing more heat and moisture than your hands have ever done before. Um, because once you pick one of these six dinosaurs secretly out of your hand and put it in your park, you're going to pass the remaining dinosaurs on. And Tom, like, I don't think... It, I think it's difficult to overstate how damp these dinosaurs became in our hands <laughs> yeah. while we were playing this game. Yeah. Is this because there was a heat wave or is this because these these dinosaurs are particularly sweat-inducing? Uh, it was a mixture of it was quite warm in the flat, but also I think me and Quinn's competitive instincts are sort of kicking in. I don't <laughs> think there's meant to be quite so much animosity in the passing of the dinos uh, than there was in this game. Well, this game should... features uh, prominently as a mechanic, it features hate drafting, where you'll be pinging out dinosaurs from your hand to go and put in the bin just so your opponent can't have them. But even more so than just the hate drafting, there was this real tension in the air every time a big fistful of reptiles got passed around it was it was silly uh, because we'd played two really heavy euro games and then you'd <laughs> won one and i'd won the other and then we played draftosaurus and like like it was some kind of tiebreaker as opposed to a children's game that mostly is an excuse to put down little wooden dinosaurs yeah it was just a little silly bit of fun uh, but who won Do uh, draftosaurus i don't Both remember times? and therefore the entire day right that's, yeah that's really strange that you don't remember let, let, i'm gonna talk about the mechanics because at least you know you can talk about winning tom i'm actually gonna do our job right now so <laughs> the way it works is that as you get a dinosaur uh, which come in six different types there's like a little stegosaurus or t-rex a little uh triceratops and the others um, which I don't know <laughs> the names of. Um, you're going to choose one and you're going to put it in uh, one of the different areas of your park. So for example, if you put it in the breeding ground, that doesn't get you any points. But if you have two of the same species in the breeding ground at the end of the game, that's five points per. Um, there's one pen which holds a lot of the same dinosaurs. Uh, any pen will give you an extra point if it's got a T-Rex in it. Uh, these are, Ava, you can, you can pick up the, the, the sort of uh, vibe here. Um, yeah, 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 I've got some points vibes here. Yeah, uh, it's all right. It's kind of like a roll and write. Um, if mm. instead of using pencils, you used very brightly colored, cute little dinosaur silhouettes made of wood. So when I describe it like that, it sounds pretty good. Um, but there it does sound cute. I'm already like into the idea of like physical objects that you're drafting rather than like a hand of cards that you're looking at in like a standard way like i guess the sweat opportunities sound like they're a bit <laughs> over the top but also like that's cool little handful of stuff that you're passing to people that's 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 nice it's good it's it's cute it's nice there's a there's a there's oh, the one of the enclosures is called something like it's not this but it is very close to the 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 fenced enclosure of loneliness where if you put a dinosaur in it it only scores if it's the only example of its species in your park <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's okay. Tom, would you like to describe why the puzzle maybe didn't quite click for us, or what? We didn't find ourselves compelled to play Draftosaurus again. I think that Draftosaurus is, you know, it is a family game. It's a children's game, and I think like the strategic like depth of it, or or the sort of like the excitement goes about as deep as like one of those like block sorting toys, where it's like that's putting a the little right... <laughs> what you mean but like square it... peg in square hole. <laughs> Yeah, it's like put the square in the square hole, put the triangle in the triangle hole. Like, you know, there's, it is, and that sounds like really, really harsh. I'm being a little bit over flippant there, I think. But like, it is a game of like, once you've worked, in the first round is where all, sort of all the decisions are, basically. In the first round, you're sort of thinking, well, 
you know, I'm going to try and make a pair of this kind of dinosaur. Or uh, if I put this dinosaur in this one, it means that I need to collect all of the same. And then from there, it just felt like the strategy was basically, I mean, it was just, you look at what's in your, in your sweaty, sweaty palm, you choose the best <laughs> option and you pass them on. I don't think that Draftosaurus doesn't have any real capacity to like surprise you at any point during the game. That's true. And yet you were both sweating like you were trying to land a 747, right? That's what you're, <laughs> what you're describing to me here. I, I know you're trying to make fun of us right now, Ava, but that is exactly what was happening um which kind of made it fun anyway so we, we played draftosaurus that, that was pretty much our thoughts on it you know wasn't yeah, um, yeah. you know it wasn't super impressive I, do you know what we played next ava oh no wait 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 before we move on i do just want to ask one question which is like do you really think that the point system is going to be like appealing for a six-year-old do you think that it's really at that the right level for that to be like a nicely accessible family game because oh. if so i kind of want a copy of it but like Math is know, such a hard thing for kids. I think sometimes? that's a superb question. I think like because taking a roll and write, which is really kind of number wang math manipulation, yeah. and it, which is actually something that we all enjoy bizarrely, and then saying like, well, of course, we'll make it for kids by having you know less rules or simpler rules. It's like, do kids enjoy doing s- s- Sudoku? You know what I mean? I think <laughs> I I'm I don't have a child. I don't have access to one right now. I'm not sure I was ever a child. So I'm not sure I could answer that question. But yeah. Tom, you're surrounded by young people all the time. Do you think, you know, uh, they would enjoy Draftosaurus? No. Uh, the- <laughs> I think that once you get past the fact that you're placing little dinosaurs, there's not that much, you know, I don't think a kid is going to get that excited about like weighing up the pros and cons of putting a dinosaur in this enclosure or this enclosure. Like if there is a puzzle there, it's for the adults around the table or the parents around the table rather than the kids. I think it's like, it's maybe a little bit too involved for like super basic math skills, but a little bit like not exciting enough for a kid who's like a little bit older. Um, okay. I, I, Yeah. I wouldn't want to put this in. I don't think it's like we, when we were playing it, we were talking about the fact that there's like a couple of nice things are like the fact that you're holding those dinosaurs in your hand and the fact that they get all clammy and kind of sweating your little palm. You can imagine a kid looking at them like a little crop of sweets in their palm and kind of choosing which one. And then that maneuver of when you, if you're playing it two player, the way that you get rid of one and that's like a really spiteful thing. And kids love that kind of stuff of being like, you don't get this. (laughs) Ha ha. You know, that sort of like stuff. Yeah, and Matt loves it too. Um, And (laughs) it's great. That part of the game is the best bit. And then on top of that is kind of, yeah, basically like a sort of roll and write point scoring thing, which I don't imagine a kid ever really caring about. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. That's what I wanted to know. I'm going to tee this up one more time. Um, Ava, do you know what Tom and I played after Draftosaurus? No. We played Draftosaurus Marina, the expansion for Draftosaurus that adds... Plesiosaurs and a tiny little dogleg board, which you sort of attach to your park. So now your park's river, which is previously bizarrely where you throw dinosaurs you don't want and they're worth one point after they've splashed into the river, um, which is not how I recommend anyone run a zoo. Now the river flows down into a marina. So if you draft a plesiosaur, then it goes into the river. And then if if you draft other dinosaurs, the plesiosaur will go under bridges and become worth more points. Little extra, little extra addition to the puzzle there. Wait, you know so you're like places? pushing the corpses of dinosaurs that you throw into the river, and they make. You know, I guess you're feeding them to the plesiosaur. You're not like just kind of wedging them further and further down the river, right? You know, uh, <laughs> different <laughs> safety regulations. I mean, if Jurassic Park has taught me anything, like all bets are off when it comes to like treatment of animals in in these parks. <laughs> Look, the more important question you should be asking, Ava, is Quinn's. How many plesiosaurs did you draft? 
Uh, Quince, how many plesiosaurs did you draft? I didn't draft any, Ava, because Aww. Tom kept pinging them back into the box. So I played <laughs> Draftsaurus Marina, which adds plesiosaurs, and I got to play with no plesiosaurs because Tom took them all. Do you know what we played after that, Ava? Oh, no. We played Draftosaurus Aerial Show, <laughs> the second expansion for Draftosaurus that adds pterodactyls. Do you know how many pterodactyls I got in our game of Draftosaurus Aerial Show? How many pterodactyls did you I get in your none, game? I got none, Ava. I got no pterodactyls because Tom drafted them all. Um, huge thanks to uh, Ankama for sending us copies of Draftosaurus uh, Aerial Show and Draftosaurus Marina. Um, I, yeah, I wanted Tom, to like this. as the people who appeared, uh, as the person who appears to have played these expansions, were they any good? <laughs> yeah, they were fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's a nice little thing there about like, you know, you wrinkles the decision making slightly when you want to punt this plesiosaur down the river. Like, do you pick up that T-Rex? It's not that good for you, but it does push your plesiosaur down the river. There's a nice little decision there. Kind of wish it was in the base game, um, yeah. but it's not. And then the other one with that adds the pterodactyls, I moved my pterodactyl once uh, and, and never again. So yeah. I didn't really engage with that one either much. Mm. Are these I just like actual it's... expansions rather than like a bonus module in the base game? Yeah, they're actual, they're box expansions and they come in adorable little boxes that oh. are like sort of half the width of the main game. So you can stack them up in this sort of cube of Draftosaurus. Oh. Um, the thing that, like, I, I feel like, Quinns, like, that we're maybe, like, missing something about this game. Like, not something in the game itself. We, you know, we played it correctly. There's only, like, nine rules. But I more mean, like, something in a sort of grander sense. Because this game is, like, rated quite well on, on BGG, on family games. It's, like, rated... Uh, as, as being better than than games uh, like Catan, for example. Uh, games like, I think I what? saw some other ones. Oh, what? Micro no, Macro don't... Crime City, Did Magic you... Maze, These Coloretto, are... Rhino Hero. These are cursed like... comparisons that you're inviting on our podcast right now. Drophosaurus is nowhere near as good as any of those games. Yeah, and 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 but yet it's considerably higher on Board Game Geek, which is like are, the components are nice. You know, the, yeah. the box cover's really nice. Um, I think if you're, a, I think I think you know, if you really have a kid who you for some reason there's like, you know, the, the world is going to end unless your child internalizes the concepts of drafting and like assigning, <laughs> you know, different <laughs> integers to different like multipliers in their quote unquote dinosaur park <laughs> you know now you've got me being mean like oh i don't know i don't know tom i don't know i think we should just move on and say that draftosaurus wasn't for us even though we really wanted to like it even though we did really like the nicely brightly colored wooden dinosaurs jay was yeah. right do kind of look like little sweets uh, yeah, I agree that it definitely wasn't for us, but I do think that I do have a sort of like valid recommendation here, which is that if you were thinking about a game like Draftosaurus, I think for a bit more money and a touch more complexity, so if you're teaching it to like not a kid, you know, like a slightly older kid, New York Zoo is a great little game for like just doing a little spatial puzzle and playing with little animal meeples on top of a, a, a puzzle that's actually really quite interesting. So, you, you know yeah, what that I would, would say? My if alternative. You, if you want a drafting game for your family, I think Sushi Go or Sushi Go Party. Oh, yeah. really are just like absolutely terrific you know that's the haribo that's the kids and grown-ups love it so i think sushi go is <laughs> simple enough that kids would enjoy that as a drafting game and um and but also you've got a, a, a especially you get sushi go party make it a little more complicated you can play it with Ooh. Ooh. there you Ooh. go doesn't have dinosaurs in though which i think is maybe the point that we're missing so i wasn't playing draftosaurus but instead we're 
doing a thing that me and Tom played together and then we talked about it on a podcast, but then the podcast didn't record. So we've got to talk about it again. But I got to play it again. I got sent a copy and I played it with some friends and I think we liked it even more than we'd liked it before. We're talking about, of course, or not of course, because you've got no idea what I'm talking about, The Court of Miracles. <laughs> uh, this is another game from Lucky Duck, uh, designed by Vincent Bruges. And Guillaume Gautrand, I've really probably got those names wrong, but some more lovely French people. Um, uh, art by Ronan Toulhout and a setting that is uh, like Notre Dame, Paris, and the place where all of the uh, ne'er-do-wells who have been out in the streets of Paris come back and then there's the miracle of them suddenly being okay. And I don't know, actually, it's kind of a problematic theme, but also a game that just like jumps off the table when you saw it. This is something that I think we walked past at UK Games Expo and just the way the board was designed and the fact that it had these little lovely wooden pieces with little hats on, uh, meant that you grabbed it because the board is cut to be the shape of the map. So, and it's yeah. got all of the buildings are kind of like projecting outwards from it. So like there's a kind of wall around the city and it's just, it's a little touch, but it does mean that it does just like look very cool. Um, and mm. these little wooden pieces are what would be workers in a worker placement game, uh, which is a handy place to start. But they've got a little secret hidden underneath them. So this is a little wooden disc, like the size of a kind of backgammon piece or something like that, with a cardboard token on it saying which faction it belongs to. So you've got three or four of these tokens, and they're on there. And you place them onto a worker placement slot, which will get you a little bonus an extra bonus from the region that you have placed it into. But that is not all. You see, whenever one of these little regions fills up, um, everybody who's in that region will have a little fight where you flip over the, the workers and reveal that there's like a hidden symbol underneath saying this person is a weak character or a strong character or a character with a special effect who does something. And that is how you gain ownership of that region, which means you'll be getting a little bit of income every time someone places into there. And yeah, it's a clever little mix of bluffing because you're putting down tiles and people don't know what you can see and uh, worker placement efficiency because each time you go, that's what bonuses you get, which will lead you to placing these tokens on the board. And just like backstabbing and trickery, right? Is that an adequate explanation, Tom? Yeah, I feel like that's pretty much uh, spot on. The way that you have these like almost miniature, they're not entirely area control, but these little battles for the bonus at each of these sort of regions so that when they fill up, it's like, who's going to get that little thing? And these bonuses are quite swingy, if I remember correctly. I don't remember this game probably as well as you do because we played it at UK Games Expo, talked about it straight away, and then I've promptly forgotten about it. But you've been playing it again. How does it hold up not on the demo table at a real house on a real table in a real house on a real table so like the first thing that i need to mention here is that when we played it at uk games expo we played it with maximum player count which i think was five players um mm. and when i played it in a real life house 
Um, I played it with three players and it was such a different game. Just looking at the BGG page here, like it says that it's best with four. The player count I haven't tried it with. So maybe (laughs) I need to squeeze together some more people so that we can uh, we can get to try that because I think this is a really interesting game. Like there is an excitement in this gesture of like putting your thing down, knowing it's a secret, guessing what other people have got, seeing how their strategy is building up. You can only ever have four of these workers and there is a way of upgrading them, which as Tom alluded to in the intro is actually by like drowning the ones you don't like in the same uh, and replacing them with a new one from a bag who might be a lot more powerful than the people you've already started with. But you'll only ever have four of these pieces, which means that you can get to know what options are in your opponent's hands and start predicting them and balancing them. Now, at five players, this is a bit too chaotic. And there's by the time it's got round to you, there's probably an entirely new board state because you can always see when someone is opening up a battle to potentially happen. There's only three slots in each of these little regions with these little bonuses in. So having um, when you put one in there, that's fine. But once as soon as there's two, anybody can decide to turn that into a fight. And there's even another way of triggering a fight, which one of the bonuses will push the beggar king uh, around the edge of the table and occasionally point at one of these courtyards and say, right, we're having a fight there, even if there's only one person in there. So at five players, this was a bit too chaotic to actually like guess at what people were doing. At three players, it was almost too easy. So I do wonder whether four is a sweet spot for it. But what I will say, oh, and I've missed out my favorite thing, which is that like they're one of the bonuses you can get is these little bonus cards that give you uh, a little treat and you can use one card per turn and it's just like an overpowered version of the card. And they're really nicely balanced. They're really lovely art and they're all based on the Major Arcana from the Tarot. So you've got like a nice tie-in with uh, something else thematic that makes sense to be in France mm. in this era. Lovely oh, bit nice. of art. And like, as you know, I do a bit of uh, tarot-related stuff and I'm aware of some, some tarot stuff and the powers are legitimately related to the cards, the meaning of the cards in traditional <laughs> thing, which is like such a little touch, but quite cute. Um, like they're not like the, the perfect, but it's like, oh, someone's actually thought about that a bit. So, this is all sounding quite cool, yeah? You had me totally yeah. on board, yeah. Yeah, so I kind of want to keep you on board, but I also have been very wary, I think in both plays of this, that I do not know if there's a huge amount of depth here. Like, it felt to me like each of those games, while they were quite different, I'd kind of seen everything that was in there quite quickly. And I'm not sure. I think it does quite a good job of giving the illusion of there being a lot of different strategies and different ways to approach it and a lot of bluffing and jumping into what other people are doing. And actually, it's just a fairly straightforward uh, efficiency puzzle with a little bit of a little bit of wiggling, a little bit of um, grit in the machine of this uncertainty of when you're going to win things and when you're not. And maybe that's a little bit random, maybe, I don't know. But the thing that I ended up talking about with this game, with the people who I was playing with the last time, is just that, like, back when I first started playing games, like, games like this were 
golden like this game was so easy to teach and put to the table it was exciting to look at like it says 40 minute playtime on board game geek and i think that's probably about right for a once you've got once you've played through it once and know the rules fairly comfortably um yeah it's quick it's clever it's a joy on the table it's exciting to look at you can kind of sell the the game sells itself just on those little pieces the production value is really high these little wooden pieces with um stuff printed onto the bottom of them so you can see what type of character you've got and then these little cardboard pieces tucking perfectly into the top of them it's all really quite lovely it's just, I don't know. When I first started playing board games, this was the kind of game that if I'd got it, I probably would have played it to death. I probably could have played this like a hundred times with one group of people and just constantly come to it. And I wouldn't have realised how bored I was getting of it until too late. Um, and now I go to it and I'm like, that's a nice thing I want to show people every now and then, but I wouldn't dive into it like that. But Can I make potentially a controversial comparison? Because mm. uh, when you talk about it you know, being this charming, bluffing game, looks good, kind of thematic, you know, maybe would have played a lot of it 20 years ago. It sounds to me a bit like Citadels, which is, mm. you know, the earliest ever review that Shut Up Citadel did. We were blown away by this little bluffing card game. And then Fantasy Flight did a really new version of it, um, a nice version of it with all the expansions a few years ago. And I sat down to play it and I was like, Okay, I get it. We're bluffing. We're kind of lying to each other, and there's kind of an economy on top of it. But I don't. There's, there wasn't enough substance there. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering if this is a similar thing, or I'm also wondering how you feel about Citadels. I mean, how I feel about Citadels is that um, it's a terrible game at high player counts, but because it goes to a high player count, it, it, people want to play it then. And so right. I've only <laughs> there's had, eight of us. Let's I've, play Citadels. Yeah, I've only had really hideous games of it. Um, but I think that observation is really astute. I think it is exactly that sort of thing where at the right time, this could be something that you could really fall in love with for a while. Um, I think it's a lovely little introduction to the hobby. I think you could play it with a family. You could play it with um, a new group of people and put something in front of them and not have any obstacles to just showing them how exciting games can be. And the only problem would be that eventually you'd get bored of it and that might not even take that long but like we're here like shut up and sit down you always told me when i was starting off here that one of the things is that our mission is to get new people into gaming and like this feels like a game that is for that and i i'm kind of a bit sad that i've now played so many games and i'm so excited <laughs> by complex systems <laughs> that it's really hard for me to be as excited about this as i would have been a, a, a decade ago you are ava the great stood on top of a mountain weeping that there are no more lies to tell <laughs> The last game we're going to talk about on this podcast is a Kickstarter game called The Transcontinental. This is designed by Glenn Dresser with art by Glenn Dresser. And in this game, you are collectively a train. That's right. It's time for more train games. 
Uh, but this one's kind of interesting. Uh, in this game, you are establishing the transcontinental railway, which is going to go from east to west across Canada, represented by this very long, thin board. And on that board, you have a set of spaces that kind of go left to right, these vertical sort of worker placement spaces. And on top of and under this board, you have these things called development tiles, which are basically buildings or locations that going on those worker placement spaces will let you activate. During the game, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be doing a series of telegram phases. First, you're going to go from <laughs> east to west, placing your telegrams on these spots on the board. Uh, and then you will set the train going along the track. And as it hits those telegrams, that's when your sort of workers, which are the telegrams, will activate. So if you can imagine it, you'll have this round of putting telegrams on the board. I'm going to go here, 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 and here. And then they sort of almost in an action programming way will activate as the train passes them. Uh, what do the telegrams do? They're going to get you loads of resources that you're going to load onto the train. They might get you the opportunity to deliver those resources to buildings. They might give you the opportunity to place more telegrams so you can take extra actions as the train goes on its merry way. But eventually, what you're going to reach is a space called the railhead, which is basically where the track ends <laughs> and the train has to screech to a halt and go, well, we're not going any further today, boys. Uh, when you reach the railhead, all players collectively will bid to advance it, spending some of the resources they have left over or that they've got especially for this purpose that are on the train. And when you bid, you'll sort of total up what everyone bids and you'll advance the train into the Canadian wilderness, making your sort of suite of worker placement spaces longer every round. Um, there's also a juicy little detail here where the player who bids the most gets to choose which of the tiles they're going to claim that the train is now going into that territory of. So there might be some that are worth more points. There might be a tile that will get you some special resources. There might be one that will let you place another telegram. But then, here's a cheeky little wrinkle. Once the train gets to the railhead, it's got to go all the way back. So in this part of the game, you'll then place any leftover telegrams to have the train then go back and hit on the way uh, back towards the other terminal. But also, when you're going east to west, you can leave your telegrams on the board to then get picked up on the way back. So you can sort of time when you're going to activate certain things and maybe bluff a little bit that you're going to pick up resources here. In a two-player game, that didn't really happen, but it might be interesting at three. I'm really sweaty, by the way. It's got very warm in this room, very suddenly, and it's not great. Are you being held in a giant hand with some uh, dinosaurs? Yeah, maybe I am. I mean, are we all a giant <laughs> hand called capitalism with, di wow. with dinosaurs called outdated economic policy? Make you think. Tom, what were you... What's the name of the, the artist designer on this game? Glenn Dresser. Right, I'm going to say what you almost certainly wouldn't hear uh, because you're too polite. But when we started playing this, the first thing I said when we sat down is, I'm nervous about this game. And I'll tell you why. It's because Glenn Dresser did both the art and the design of this game. Now, if you like music, <laughs> you might be aware of the idea of a double or a triple threat, someone who can sing and dance and play instruments. Um, I get, I never get more nervous playing games than when it's an artist who has designed their own game. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like I have, you know, sort of like prior form for that. Like, Generally, doubling up of, of skills in board games doesn't go well. The worst manuals we ever read are from designers who write their manuals themselves, which is not something you should do, PSA. Um, and Transcontinental looks beautiful. So me, cynical, was like, ah, I see where all of this person's, you know, talent exists. It's in the art. Transcontinental is a gorgeous looking game. For a game about trains, goodness me, Tom, actually, I've just realized this could be board game. Board games have like a million train games. Transcontinental, yeah. I think... 
certainly the prettiest train game I've ever seen. And that is yes. saying something. Yeah, it has this gorgeous color palette. It's one of my favorite parts of the game is the way that you have this sort of depiction of this railway going from one side of Canada to the other also kind of lines up with an almost seasonal board where you have mm. these sort of pinks and reds on one side that go into these sort of burnt umbers and yellows in the middle before going into kind of cool greens on the end. It's really lovely. It's a beautiful board to look at. Um, and not like, you know, it's not a game that has dramatically luxury components. This is just the strength of how it looks on the table, which is like really, yeah, it's very striking with these, the, the telegrams and the player colors you have that sort of jut out from the board. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful to look at, uh, for sure. Yeah, and so immediately I, Captain Cynic, was like, well, absolutely no way this game is good because no way an artist this talented can design like a, a mathematics. Turns out I was delighted to be proved wrong. <gasps> Transcontinental is quite a strong Euro game. Um, yeah. I didn't love it, though, and I did come away deciding I probably didn't want to play it again, even if mm -hmm. I did enjoy the two hours that, that we played together. I was surprised that... Um, as you described the game, Tom, you didn't mention one of my favorite things about it, which is because, you know, you're all riding this one train together up and down the board <laughs> to develop the tracks. Um, space on that train is limited. And even though it didn't play a huge role in the game, I did find this quite an interesting mechanic to, to learn about. That as you all acquire, like, you know, wood or steel or tourists or laborers, you know, for this train, they all go on the train. And that might be a problem if you know, like, let's say you want to use, I don't know, uh, get grain because you're developing a settlement way down the line that needs grain. Um, there might not be any grain cars on the train because your friend filled them with coal. You know, likewise, <laughs> the passenger cars might not have room for engineers right now because your friend filled them with tourists. Um, but that's okay. You still get the resources, but they go into a kind of stockyard. All of those tourists, little tiny little women faces um, will go on the train, uh, sitting in the stockyard, wait for the train to come home, and then you can connect that carriage to the train as it departs again. Um, there's yeah. lots of quaint stuff in this game. Yeah, I think that I, I, I should have maybe focused more on that central gimmick, which is, yeah, jostling for space on the train. Like, it, it can be a nightmare when, like, you know, the railhead that, you, you know, you want to push it forward. This round, it might favor, you know, wood. So wood is going to be an extra valuable resource in pushing on towards the wilderness. But then, you know, your friend opposite you just places their telegram a little bit earlier, stuffs the train full of wood, and then you've got nothing. You've got nothing by the time you get to the railhead, and it's a nightmare. It feels like a physical object. And that's, like, more than a lot of train games that this train is a thing that you are loading with goods and there's a very tactile feel to that as well as quite a tactical little consideration to go on top of it i think i agree with you that this is like a game that i really enjoyed but i'm not leaping to play it again it's not the greatest game of all time it's not the you know the hottest new thing but i do think that it's incredibly interesting like i think this is a game and a puzzle that is like very unique you have this shared infrastructure in the train, but you also have these buildings that you can kind of develop uh, along the way. And there's a mini game that doesn't really come into play in a two-player game, but might with more, where players who contribute more towards the building get a big chunky bonus. They get to then use that building to su supply the train with stuff. But if you help the other player, you still get a couple of points. So it's weighing up whether it's worth dropping off a couple of your goods to help someone out. There's like a little mini game of when you do that sort of depositing goods, you pick a single cube on the train to be the one that you're depositing and everything behind that is what gets the option. So you could just on offload the one good that you have at the end of the car and then no one else gets the opportunity to do it. That's really juicy. There's loads of these little tiny rubs in the design that are really interesting to look at. But I think what you said, Quinn's really struck with me, which is that I played this game and had a really good time and I do want to play it again, 
Maybe because I didn't really crunch about my decisions. <laughs> uh, yeah, Ava, I was about to tell you this. It, uh, delighted that Tom is talking a good game and be very charitable about Transcontinental. But uh, he can be like, I think this is really interesting. I demolished him at this game. And I and I was the one who came away being like, yeah, I did not enjoy the, the, the calculations I had to do to get a score this high. Right. Um, and curiously, a lot of my problems came down to readability. Like as beautiful as the board is, um, the numbers I was having to reference and cross-reference, I didn't feel popped off the board enough. Um, the box mm -hmm. and board are really small for, for such a heavy experience to come in such a, a small box with no area in it is really nice. But then I found myself wishing there was, you know, wishing it was bigger simply so I could, you know, I could look at it more. Um, and I do feel that as much as Tom and I praise how it looks as a work of art, um, it is inarguably beautiful. But, but this is the thing, being an artist isn't the same as being a board game artist because board game artists have to consider readability and you know where the game resides. And I, I felt that Transcontinental didn't do that as well. Mm. Um, found it kind of sort of, I would even go as far as to say that sometimes we're tiresome in terms of trying to figure out like, well, where was this wood going again? Why am I upgrading this town? Mm. I have to cross-reference all the different sources of points. Um, yeah, and, and I wonder if in, a, if in a three player or four player game, you'd have, I was thinking that I wouldn't want to play this game at those higher player counts because you could end up having these very long, sprawling, crunchy turns where people have to sort of work out exactly what to do with all their resources that they've got on this shared train. But then I think, I wonder if with that many players, you'd end up getting a little bit soupier with your strategy, whether you'd have players knowing that the train can fill up in sort of unpredictable ways, knowing that players might snipe the spot they need and having a game that's played a little bit more on impulse. I think that that everything you just described sounds annoying to me. I think I'd still be doing the same calculations, <laughs> but they just wouldn't work as well. Yeah, um, for sure. Which worries me. What I will say, uh, Ava, you know what? It, or to anyone listening, if you would like uh, to own a deck of illustrated famous Canadians who worked ah. on the railways, you can do that yeah. by buying Transcontinental. Oh uh, it's got a deck of ally cards and um, it, you can hire them. And in fact, it was instrumental to my strategy is just fill, uh, picking up more and more and more and more famous Canadians and being like, <laughs> who are you? Okay, and then they all have like full names and you can learn about them in the manual. But I was way more excited oh. that this person lets me ship a wood from the stockyard to the town I'm developing. Um, you don't learn about them in the manual. You learn about them in the entirely separate historical notes booklet. Oh, I love God. that stuff. I love that Do stuff. Do you know what? This Ava. has been a roller coaster. Like, Tom, you described <laughs> the telegram thing, and I was so excited about this. Then Quinn's, like, took me to the top of that first peak of, like, oh, no, is this actually going to be terrible? It sounds beautiful. It sounds beautiful. <laughs> and then, like, and then, oh, just up and down. And, like, you really lost me. You nearly lost me. I started to be like, oh, no, soupy and hard to read. And then you just poured in a load of famous canadian railroad workers <laughs> and i'm like whoa uh tom could you send me could you send me this or do you want to play it again <laughs> ava i will play it again with oh, you yes. that's the way we should do this best of both worlds yeah, definitely i will say that it's great you know any game that wants to ship with a separate booklet telling you about the history of all the like different cards and people in the game that's great I will say that Transcontinental hasn't eclipsed my favorite one of these, which is in A Feast for Odin, where every component <laughs> in the game is listed in a separate booklet. So Feast for Odin, game about Vikings. You don't read about famous Vikings. You can look up G and find grain and read about how did the Vikings use grain? Or like H, horse. The Vikings' relationship to horses. Well, and it's like, it's it's preposterous. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, and like, yeah, if you've never learned so much about Vikings as I have picking up that booklet and being like, what's this? And then suddenly 25 minutes passed. It's a feast for learning. 
Fish for learning. Uh, we have to end the podcast now. That's, that's, that's awful. <laughs> Uh, I have to end it. Oh dear. Right. Well, I hope that you all enjoyed our feast for. No, I can't just say it again. I hope you all enjoyed that lovely <laughs> podcast. It's been lovely having you listening to us talk about games as we trap Quinns in a sealed room and force him to talk about games, remove him I from the get sun, out. and just say, leave. "No, this is it. This is it. You got to talk about games now." Tom, give him another game to talk about. Make it happen, <laughs> Quinns. I want to learn all about food chain magnate. Can you tell me the <laughs> Rules again, please. <laughs> okay. Well, in the first, yeah, the, the first thing you do is build your pyramid of staff, right? Or that is that before or after turn order? I can't remember. But once you built your pyramid of staff, players can, I think, act simultaneously because you can hire people. Um, wait, yeah, and then you—that's when you make food. That's but then there's then there's the market.